Today's episode is brought to you by Digits and Threads. Digits and Threads is the member-supported online magazine for Canadian fiber and textile arts. No matter where in the world you are, there's something crafty in the great white north for you. Use the code ALLIANCE for 10% off your first year at digitsandthreads.ca. Thank you so much, Digits and Threads. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 191 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about creating an inclusive craft community with my guest, Cecilia Nelson-Hurt. Cecilia is a proud Afro-Latina who was taught to crochet as a child by her grandma, Sophie, and learned to knit many years later. Known to many in the fiber community as Creative Ceci, she is a global knitting and crochet enthusiast. Ceci is a diversity and inclusion practitioner for the global brand L'Oreal and has over 15 years experience developing and executing initiatives to create an equal opportunity workplace. She leverages her training and experience as a speaker at many fiber events and is also an inaugural member of the Vogue Knitting Live Diversity Advisory Council and on the board of Knit the Rainbow, an organization founded to provide knitted garments, crafting instruction, and support to homeless LGBTQ plus youth. Ceci loves to travel and ensure she visits a yarn shop wherever she goes. To date, she's visited over 150 shops, both across the USA and internationally. Ceci, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Yeah, it's great to talk with you. And I'd love to kind of start back. I know you learned crochet from your grandma, as you mentioned in the intro. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and um, what your parents did for work when you were a child. Sure. So I I, I grew up here in 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 uh, New York in the five boroughs, and so um, you know my 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 family is from from Panama. So my 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 grandmother, my mom, my my you know everyone's from Panama. So I spent a lot of my um, uh, primary years uh, visiting with my grandfather because my mother, my grandmother and grandfather has separated so spending time with my grandfather and his his new family my extended uh a, a, a family and so my funny my, my my funny joke is that my mother in her effort to assimilate did not teach me spanish and so spanish was like it's almost like a secret weapon it's like a secret skill in the house and so it was how they were able to talk around me <laughs> you know little little Pictures have big ears, I guess is the saying that they say. But when I would go to Panama, my grandfather was the only person who spoke English in the house and he would leave for work. And so I have my my aunts and uncles. I respect them as my aunts and uncles. And so I learned Spanish that way. And so that's a fun, you know, p- part of my, I think that's where I developed my, 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 my love of travel, you know, going to Panama and then going alone. Um, as you know, that was where I spent my my um, summer, and my mother couldn't always like take off work to fly me down, so I was traveling alone. It was a different time, um, but my grandmother was a seamstress, 
And so, so my grandmother, when she came from Panama, she had ambitions of doing something in fiber and, or in fashion rather, not really, you know, in, in, from a textile perspective. And she wasn't able to secure um, a, um, an opportunity. And, you know, she, she based it on race, the fact that she was black in the late fifties and couldn't do what she wanted to do, what she wanted to do, but she could, you know, find other sources of employment. And so she ended up being a seamstress for St. Luke Roosevelt Hospital here in New York. And I remember being very young and visiting her and like, it was not, you know, like one level below the main level. And it was like a seamstress room and there were women in there sewing the doctor's coats. And like they were literally so like that. That's what she did. She was sewing, you know, the, the, the doctor, I remember like the, the, I don't, I remember like the, the color is gray, the color is blue, the white, the like minty green. Like, so she was sewing these, I guess the scrubs as well. You know, I guess that's what they did, right? Until they outsourced them all. Or maybe she was just doing repairs. I'm not sure, but that was her role. And she, and she was able to, to, to retire. And so, um, but she did take classes at FIT. And so she learned other sorts of pattern making and um, like a, official uh, pattern making. She could always make patterns because she made me made a lot of my Easter dresses and a lot of my birthday outfits. Um, but she also, you know, did her curtains and her pillows and reupholstered her own love seat. She was quite handy. Um, and so I, I always say I come from a long line of textile women because then my mom, um, my mom didn't sew as much she could, but my mother was really into the aesthetics of cake um, decorating. So she did like the Wilton uh, yeah. So t- like when she passed away, I got tons of nibs, <laughs> tons yes. of things. Like I just, I'm like, okay. And you know, for a while I did fancy Martha Stewart, like uh, cookies. And then my mother also did floral arrangements. And so if, you know, um, so in our culture, like the baby shower, like now they're big baby showers, but for us, that was always a thing, like a big baby shower, the sweet 16 or for us known as the, 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 the quinceanera. So when you're 15 and so my mother did like the favors, the things with the people's name on it that you would pin on your clothing when you come to an event. So, my, so both my mother and grandmother were very uh, taxile and, 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 and crafty. Yeah. And so there was always fabric and needlepoint and latch hook. There, were, there was always something around, right? At one point, my mother was into pottery. So there was always something around. So um, being precocious and an only child, my grandmother thought I was old enough to learn how to, to crochet. I might've been seven, six or seven. And I didn't do anything fancy, but I knew how to hold a needle and I could do like a chain and I could do different things. And then um, I remember getting the uh, famous pot, pot holder kit with the loops. <laughs> oh yeah, um, totally. We still have right? them. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. I actually saw that, that, that Pearl Soho was selling them. I was like, I know they're back. I think- <laughs> I, I'm like, but outside of potholders, what? Okay, I don't know what you would do. I mean, you can make potholders <laughs> yeah. and trivets, and then you're done. <laughs> Unless somebody is very creative and they come up with maybe like placemats if you connect them. I don't know. Um, but I I got the potholder kit, and everyone in our little building where, where we live got potholders <laughs> in their colors. Right? If you read them, and, and then I got fancy, you know, doing like three color, like like like, like two colors, and weaving them in and different things. Like that was my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I moved away from fiber, you know, I outside, like after I made my, my Barbie, my Barbie clothes, then I was kind of, that was it. I, Cause I, I didn't know how to make anything. Right. So, so I didn't know how to 
make like a hat or a scarf or a cowl to keep me engaged in it. And so I right. moved away from fiber, but um, it was and always yeah. there. Yeah. So, so what did you um, go on to study when you went to college or what did you think you were going to, to do professionally, you know, as when you were growing up? Yeah. So professionally, um, you know, I think the earliest, my earliest thing, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, like sixth grade, I was thinking law, right? I was reading books about, you know, early introduction to law, to to Kill a Mockingbird and and things like that, right? Um, And so I thought lawyer. Uh, But then by the time I got to high school, I participated in junior achievement. Uh, which is a program where they, where, where, I mean, we, I support it now in my day job. Right. And so, so junior achievement um, sends corporate people to various schools. So high schools and you're part of this junior achievement um, cohort and you get an assignment and you, you know, you, you can run for election in your, your cohort group. And so I ended up being the vice president of marketing in our, 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 our cohort group. And we have these little, these little um, things. I don't even know what to call it. It was a little, uh, it was a, 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 a container, but it was tiered c- containers and, you know, not very, very fancy. And like, it basically, if, if it was around now, news would use it to hold our, our stitch markers. Like you would have stitch markers on one level and pins on another level, it was like a five tiered little thing about the size of a can of soda. And that was our thing that we had to sell. And so we had to market it and then we had to like plan like, you know, this is how much it costs, how much, how much can we sell it for? How do we, what do we want to call it? Um, and I don't remember what we called it. I just remember that was charge of marketing. You think I'd remember that piece. And then the big um, event was that we got to go to the office where the people who were, were our sponsors worked and it was Pfizer. And so remember, I said that my mom, my grandmother worked in a hospital, my mother worked in a hospital, and my stepfather worked in a hospital. So I did not go into an office unless it was a doctor's office. But doing junior achievement was my first time going into a corporate office. And I remember it so clearly coming in with our little group and getting our badge and going through the, going up the escalator and the elevator. And we set up our stations outside of their cafeteria. And it was, again, I learned that the company was sponsoring several other groups of junior achievement kids. And so here we all are, and we all have our tables and it's kind of like a flea market but we each were selling our items to the Pfizer employees. And that was like my first corporate experience, my first, you know, if you want to call it that. But from that, I was like, oh, I think I really want to be a marketer. Wow. And then, That's you know, so and then great. I, yeah. And, and then follow that with, you know, watching shows like, like um, uh, 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 Bewitch, her husband worked in marketing. Right. And I'm like, I could be like Darren. <laughs> I could be like, I could do what Darren's doing. <laughs> right. Oh and so I I thought that marketing, you know, and again, I was watching, I, I'm, 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 a, I'm a child of the seventies. Right. And so like Doris Day and all those movies, and there was always a marketing movie. And so again, I thought I could be in marketing. And so that, that was my ambition. Um, by the time I got to college, I, I don't know if I had moved away from marketing. I think it was in the back of my mind. And then I decided to major in marketing. And so my undergrad degree is in international 
marketing. Because again, here's that international travel yeah. theme, right? right so right. I was thinking about like, not just just marketing for the, you know, for, for America, I was thinking about working for a global company, where we would market in other parts of the world, I knew I wanted to travel. So these are all the things that, as I sit back now, I realized that those that thread was consistent. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, and so that That's was super cool. you know, yeah. my ambition. <laughs> I love that. And I love that formative story too. And so, okay. So when you came out of college, um, what sort of, I, I know like there was a, a path that led you to L'Oreal USA and to the yeah. role, the specific role that you hold there working in diversity and inclusion. And so I just wonder if you can kind of trace the path because it is an, it's an interesting thing to think about, like how, how do you get where you are yeah. right now? I love, you know, and it's funny because, so, so I'm, I'm very, I'm, I consider myself a, a storyteller. Uh, and I have a few uh, mentees. And so I tell this story pretty often. So I'm really, I've gotten, I think I've gotten good at it and it's my story. Who else can tell my story better than me? So I actually was a teen mom, right? So I had my daughter at 19 between high school and while in my first year of college. And so I, you know, I had my daughter and so I didn't go back to school immediately. I tried to take classes and did a little bit of in and out. Um, and then when I, I got a job at Chase, Chase Manhattan Bank. And I was actually an admin, right? And so I worked because 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 in high school I took typing, right? Typing to the rescue. So I knew how to type at one point, like like 95 words a minute on a typewriter. Um, and also in high school, I participated after junior achievement in co-op. And so, and so co-op was where you went to school for a week and you worked for a company for a week. And so I worked for a publishing. Um, um, company for a week. And so um, once I had my daughter, I had these typing skills. And so I was always able to get a great job. And so I got I, or so great job for my age and for somebody who's not finished with school. Um, and so when I got the job at Chase, I knew I wanted to go back to school. And so I enrolled in Pace University for marketing and I worked and went to school at the same time. Wow, that's a, that's a lot, yeah. And raised my child right. and cared for it and cared for an ailing mom. Wow. So it so it took me longer than most, but I graduated with honors. Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> right? yeah. I graduated, yeah. and people always ask me like, how did you do that? And I'm like, you know, when you're doing something, you don't realize that the thing you're doing is hard. You just unless somebody because uh, you're like, I'm I want to finish school. Like I, I knew that college uh, finishing college was a part of what would be my story. I, I knew that was important. And also it's like the immigrant dream. Right. My, my grandmother and my mom, that was like they wanted me and I wanted myself. And so college was important and working and caring for my daughter and so forth. And so um, J.P. Morgan had a snap, you know, Chase merged with J.P. Morgan. And so at the time, Chase, I used both terms interchangeably, had a management development program. And so this is, you know, and that was my first time. I had never even heard of this. What are you talking about? So like you hire a college graduate and you put them through training for 18 months. And so you're paying me to learn. That's amazing. And yeah, what a great opportunity. Right, exactly. And again, I didn't know that. I also didn't know how competitive it was, right? Because once I found out about the program, I applied. I didn't know that they were also, you know, going to colleges and telling students about it and, 
everyone is doing these interviews. And so, you know, um, the team that I worked with, they like read my resume over, they read my, my cover letter and I submitted it and I got selected for the interview and they prepped me for the interview and thank goodness I did it <laughs> and I did well. And so I was part of, uh, maybe it was 27 of us. And my understanding is at one point the applications were as much as 400. Wow. Yeah. 400 applications. Better down. to not know that, how competitive Better to is. not know in the beginning, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so, but that really put me on a different path, my career in a different trajectory, because I could have, while working for Chase, just applied for a job and gotten a job and learned. But being in what they call a fast track focus, right? So for 18 months, I did five different rotations for three months each. So in marketing, finance, and customer service, and so forth. And then with training in between. So when I graduated the management development on program, I had scored, secured a job as a um, editorial assistant in one of the bank's um, roles in their corporate communications team. So now I'm doing marketing, right? right? I'm, but I'm not doing, I'm I'm not doing marketing in the sense of this is my product and this is the price and I'm learning more about the role of corporate communications. Yeah. Uh, and, f- and so, you know, one of my dear friends who's a friend now was in the class ahead of me and she was in a really cool role that she was moving out of. And she was like, you know, you've done like, like internet development, you do events, you've done this. Um, my job that I'm leaving is perfect for you. It's in, university relations and it's being a campus marketer and basically it's marketing jp morgan and chasing jp morgan on campus so it's the look and feel of the website the brochures and so i moved into this marketing role not realizing that this role was in hr and right so the goal when you're marketing on campuses is to recruit new college grads to come and work Right. We've all been to like to the, do the program like I did. Right. Employment so, so you go to, and, right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So partnering with um with the, the, the career services at, at various right, schools. Right. Right. And so, like I said, I went through a management development program. But at the time, Chase had like seven programs. So you can either be trained to um, work in a branch or be trained to work in investment banking or commercial banking or more. um um. um a more uh, like the type of role that I went through was more um, I'm open to other opportunities. And so now I got to be the person on campus, like preparing the marketing for all the groups. And so um, I'll, I'll, I'll make a, a long story short, but during that time going to these various schools is when I started interviewing and I learned how to interview and I learned about the um, um, efforts to increase um the, the diversity of the, the candidates. And so I'm picking up, like nothing is ever wasted. I'm picking up all of these skills and I'm understanding, you know, like, like how to interview and how to, and how to read a resume. And so um, I was with JP Morgan for 13 years and I love, you know, my, my story is, as I said, I started off as an admin and I graduated or I left the company as a VP. That is an amazing story. And so it's so great that they had, a way to help you grow in that position. Like I think companies so really need to do that, you know, to tap internal talent and train you up. I think that's just brilliant. And 
so perfect. And so through that, I also, you know, during the time there, I'm, I'm learning about mentoring and being mentored and, and learning about affinity groups. And so I was able to be a leader of an affinity group for their employees of, of, of African heritage. And so I left, um, now it's officially from, from, from JP Morgan. I left the company doing diversity recruiting and MBA recruiting. Um, and because my position was eliminated, as was, was happening during the the you know t- 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 two thousand and eight, right? Financial crisis, yeah. Financial yeah. crisis. They're, yeah. they're downsizing, and I consulted with the YMCA for the summer. I got a consulting job um, because now I know a little bit about recruiting and and HR, so I know enough to be you know helpful. And then through my network, I learned that L'Oreal was looking for a diversity recruiter focused on MBA recruiting. And I'm like, that's exactly what I just did. (laughs) And so I was the ideal candidate because I knew all the terms. I knew everything. Um, The only thing I didn't know was how to interview for a marketing company versus interviewing for a bank. But I was, you know, I went to school for marketing. So again, so that, so that's how I ended. That's how I got to to L'Oreal. I want to take a moment now to hear from our sponsor, Digits and Threads, and one of the co-founders of Digits and Threads, Kim Worker. My name is Kim Worker, and I'm the co-founder and publisher at digitsandthreads.ca. And what is Digits and Threads? Digits and Threads is the online magazine for Canadian fiber and textile arts, crafts, and industry. We publish several times a month articles and stories about Canadians making things in fiber and textiles, both from historic traditions and contemporary practices. We're essentially telling Canadian stories that Canadians want to hear and that people in the rest of the world want to learn about coming from Canada. That's great. And um, can you give us some examples of some recent stories that have been interesting or might we might want to check out? Sure. Uh, we have loved reaching out to writers uh, across Canada uh, to write about stories that relate to their own traditions. We have heard from uh, an expert in Indigenous bead traditions who is doing her PhD work on this and has explored her own uh, personal history and traditions of beading and also those across Indigenous communities in Canada and the U.S. We have worked with an Inuit writer who wrote about a gallery exhibition of decades in the past Inuit textile work. And what was so great about that was hearing the pride that she felt seeing the traditions of her people reflected in this gallery. And so we love working with with writers who are emerging, whose voices we might not have heard before, especially those who are writing about their own perspectives in a way that nobody else could share them. And so that's the kind of work that we're doing. And we're also publishing embroidery patterns, cross-stitch patterns, knitting patterns, crochet. So we're multi-craftual exploring fiber and textile arts in Canada. That sounds so fantastic. So tell people where they can go to check this out and learn more. Sure. We are an independent member-supported online magazine at digitsandthreads.ca and listeners can enjoy 10% off their first year using the code Alliance. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you. Thank you so much, Digits and Threads. And now back to my conversation with Cecilia. Um, This summer will make 13 years with L'Oreal. I spent time doing diversity recruiting. 
I spent time in an HR capacity. I'm not an HR professional, but I spent time in that HR role. And I guess you would say I'm an HR professional because recruiting is an HR function. And then I moved into the diversity and inclusion space about six years ago. Nice. That's so great. I, I thank you so much for telling us this whole path. I think it's fascinating to see how people get where they are. So I think I really appreciate that. And so it sounds like, were you knitting all along or what was the knitting part of your life? Like, the knitting you know, piece. you had crafting as a child, but you kind of left yeah. it behind for a while. So how did you come back to yarn and knitting and, or, or knitting and crochet? It's so perfect, right? Because I think, um, I graduated the J.P. Morgan program um, in the beginning of 2001, right? So the, the same year, September 11th, um, my mom is still alive at this time and my mom is very sick. And in cleaning her house, I came across a bag of yarn and she had started a crocheted something. And I was like, hey, I remember this stitch. And I played around with it. I don't even know what she, she might've been making a vest or something. I just play, played around with the stitch. And I, oh, like, wow, this, it comes, it's like riding a bike, right? Once you pick it up, it just comes right back. And at the same season, I ran into a girlfriend on the subway who was wearing a scarf that was, I was like, oh, let me look at that scarf. And we're on the train and her scarf is a double crocheted scarf. And so I go to Michael's and I get some yarn and then I replicate her scarf. And that became the holiday gift that all my friends got until one day I was in Banana Republic and saw that I had co-opted the, so the scarf that my friend had was clearly the Banana Republic scarf that I had co-opted and created it and was giving it out as a Christmas gift. And so I was like, oh, I really enjoyed that. You know, I really enjoyed this, 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 this yarn. Uh, and then I started reading about, you know, Friday night knitting the book and that Julia Roberts was knitting and this, you know, all the celebrities who were knitting. And I'm like, I think I want to learn how to knit. And so in my mind was the seed that I want to learn how to knit. And then September 11th happened. And so I'm now a recruiter. I travel and September 11th happened and I have to fly and I'm nervous. And I was like, let me, you know, I was going away for a weekend. Let me go to learn how to knit. And so I went to a yarn shop. They literally gave me a book and yarn and needles. And she didn't even like, uh, in full disclosure, I was there on lunch. So I didn't have time for her to teach me. But she was like, it's pretty simple. The book, you know, wasn't even YouTube, just had pictures. And I taught myself how to knit. And then the weekend I was going away to Vermont, there was a yarn shop in Vermont. And so I stopped in the yarn shop and because you're, you're teaching yourself, you, do, you don't know, again, you don't know, right? So I didn't know that I should probably do a garter thing. I did stockinette because the picture said, this is knit and this is purl. And so I knit one row and I purl one row. I never switched it, but I did twist my stitches. So when I have this, the project that I made and in the yarn shop, the woman was like, oh no, you're, I think I might've been either like wrapping wrong or going in wrong. And she corrected my stitch. And that was the beginning of the end. Wow. <laughs> I came, I came back home. I went to a yarn shop. I got a project. Um, and, you know, again, I mentioned September 11th because I developed a fear of flying, but I'm a recruiter and I have to fly. I have to fly on little planes to go to, to Ithaca, to go to, to Cornell. And so what got me through that was knitting. I, you know, I'd never had my, my needles taken away on any flight. 
thank goodness, because I would cry. <laughs> yeah. and so knitting got me through my fear of flying. And so that's how knitting came back in, in, into my life. And then within my first year of knitting, and so knitting for me, you know, 2001, 2002 is an individual activity. I don't know anyone who knits outside of the people who I see at the yarn shop. Uh, and then I met somebody on the bus and we started talking and that was my first fiber friend. And we went to our first fiber event and we found out about Rhineback and, you know, we went to Rhineback on a bus tour. And then I joined, you know, sit in New York through the meetup groups. And I met my fiber friends who are my friends now. Wow. And so yeah. now I'm seeing there's this whole community and a subculture. Yeah. And I love it so much that before I knew that I would, you know, leverage uh, knitting the world, you know, I was going to all these school towns. And I'm like, is there a yarn shop here in, in Michigan near the University of Michigan? Oh, it's over. There's a yarn shop. And so I would so I would go to yarn shops. And so since recruiting and knitting. And I had time, you know, between the events, I would find a yarn shop. And that's when the yarn shop count started, kind of. Sort right. Of. Yeah, yeah. And so you've been to, as we said in the introduction, like a, a 150 or more yarn shops because it's of this. definitely, yeah, it's probably more yeah. at this point. I mean, sure. obviously, COVID put a damper on on the travel, but it, I'm sure it'll come back and, and even more will add mm -hmm. up. And so I wondered, I mean, I was thinking to myself, if I had been to that many yarn shops, I probably would have things that I've sort of learned or noticed shop to shop to shop sort of, I don't know. I wondered if you have any reflections on what you've oh, come to know absolutely. about yarn shops from all of those visits. Absolutely. You can tell in the first 90 seconds, if you want to spend, spend time there. The second you walk in, it's kind of like if you go to a department store, and no, well, not so much a department store, but if you go to a small little shop or boutique and no one greets you and there are people there, right? And so I've learned very early about being made to feel welcomed. Yeah. And so walking into a space and, you know, um, and, you know, I'm either going at lunchtime or at the end of the day. So I'm not going when it's not a busy time. So there's always people there, right? I've, always people at the table, whatever. And so if no one makes me feel welcome, I usually don't have a good experience in, the, in that yarn shop. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, and is, again, I haven't had. What is making you feel welcome? Like, what do they do? It's welcoming. Like, oh. and, and because and because I'm traveling, right. And because I'm coming in, it's hi, how are you? How can I help you? Uh, what are you looking for something? You know, just asking me mm -hmm. or just saying, because every yarn shop is different. And so you don't assume that I know where your fingering, your sport weight, your bulky. So you have to speak to me. You can't just let me. You, you 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 can't just let me um, come in and wander. Yes, you can let me wander, but typically you just give me a lay of the land. Oh, hi, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, we're here. You're looking for anything special? Just let me know. You're free to look around. I'm I'm right here if you need me. Right, so you don't have to follow me around. Right, but just let me know that I can. You know that you'll be the person, or you could ask anyone. Mm -hmm. And so the shops that I tend to fall in love with are the shops where people do that, where they acknowledge you, they welcome you, they, you know, stay close enough that if you have a question, 
mm-hmm. or they don't make you feel like you're bothering them if right. you have a question. Because I've gotten that too. Oh I'm yeah, like, me too. Yeah. I'm like, okay, ma'am, but you work here. And so, yes, you're knitting because you work here and, you know, there's nobody bothering you. But if I have a question, I shouldn't be made to feel, and, and, you know, um, and so the elephant in the room is always when I'm, when I don't get the service I think I should get, I try to figure out why. And as people, and I, I teach this at work, when, when someone doesn't treat you the way you think you should be treated, you, you go to your dimension of diversity. Are they not, are they treating me this way because I'm a man and this is, of yarn shop and they think that only women should be here. They, they treated me this way because I look like I can't afford the yarn in here. And that could be any race and any gender. Or the, and then are they treating me this way because I'm black? Right. And so you have to go there. And if there are no other black people in the shop, you're like, all right, what's going on? And then you pay attention to see the next person. How do they treat that person? Mm-hmm. And if they treat that person differently and that person doesn't look like you, then you have to go to, okay, it's because of this. And and it may or may not be. And, you know, people will never admit like, well, yeah, I treated you differently because you were black. Right. So I have to, to walk away with that. And there have been times when, you know, there's remember this shop in Manhattan. It's it's no longer there. So um, and the woman was so just cold. And, you know, I started teaching people um, how to knit at work and I sent them to the shop. And then when they come back, I'm like, how did you feel when you went there? And then my friends, different races, different genders, was like, yeah, they weren't nice. I was like, okay, so the store is not nice. <laughs> right, 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 right. And there are, there are stores like that. Or, Valid. Right, or where they're like, um, they have kind of a club feel where they're with their buddies yeah. and they don't want to like- feel, not even a, a club. Click. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been to stores like that too. And it's like, that's not the way to run a store. Um, yeah, so interesting. And so- um, so this hobby was developing, you were going to these stores, having these experiences and then, um, kind of Ravelry and then Instagram come along and, and you start participating there, I'm, I'm assuming. And, yes. um, and what did you notice about kind of the fiber community as a whole? Did you, um, have those same diversity questions or at, at all coming up or was it not real? Was it sort of more latent, the online sort of culture, um, so, you know, I, def- I mean, so definitely noticed the lack of, but because I'm intentional, right? So I've, I've always been very intentional. And so because I belong to, remember I mentioned, I, I mentioned the meetup group. So yeah. the sit and knit group was diverse, right? So because, so I'm, I'm, I'm curating and then, you know, I'm meeting other women of color. I'm meeting Hispanic women and Asian women. And so I'm, 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 I'm curating my own group of people, my fiber friends, you can, you, you can call right, them now, right. but I, but I am noticing certain groups that I'm like, there's not a lot of diversity there. Certain experiences there's, you know, I I've been to Edinburgh three times and I can definitely say from time one to time three, I've saw a tremendous increase in people of color. Probably the first time I went myself and my two friends and maybe definitely less than absolutely less than 10 people that I saw. Right. And again, I don't know if, if somebody is, is, is interracial, is interracial, I, 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 I don't know. Right. But I'm saying visibly compared to the last time that I was there when I just felt different. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So over time, you see you you see an, an evolution. So for me, I definitely noticed that, you know, there was a lack um, before even with, you know, before, you know, I don't know what year I would attribute it to, but I didn't see a lot of black BIPOC. It's not that just black for me now. It's BIPOC designers. Right. I'm not seeing, you know, when you pick up the magazines, you're not seeing a lot of of, of, of diversity, diversity in, of age and shape and gender. I wasn't, you know, so that that all came about later. Mm-hmm. Right. But, you know, we we moved through the space and, you know, it's it's people, were, you know, you people are voicing it and they're talking about it. Um, but in many ways, it was just like, OK you you create your own space. Right. Right. So if it's not, you know, if there's not a seat at the table, you build one. Or right. you build your own table. <laughs> uh, and, so and so that was a lot of what was happening. Yeah. And you you've really um begun or have now taken a a, a leadership role in talking about diversity and inclusion in the fiber industry, um, just moderating panels, speaking on panels. Um teaching and then serving on various boards and things like that. So I wonder when, or was there for you a moment when you realized, wait a minute, some of my professional expertise could come to to bear here and could really be of service. Absolutely. And thank you. Um, You know, and and so one thing I'm I'm very cognizant of the leader term, right? And so I, I definitely say that I'm one of the voices, right? I don't think I'm, I'm definitely not the only one. And I don't think oh, I'm not the first person, sure. right? And so I, I'm very intentional to acknowledge um, the others. But for me, um, I think, you know, January, 2019, the same as everyone else, right? When, when the major reckoning happened, like I had been aware, but I wasn't vocal. I wasn't talking about it. There were others who were talking about it way before January 2019. I, I I was not. I was doing my work. I was doing my professional work and existing in this space and being aware of when I was made to feel different. Um, and so January 2019, as everyone now is now it's it's it's, it's the the rank the the reckoning, and so as everyone is saying, hey, you know, I have I haven't been made to feel welcome, and this is how I was treated, and this is what I don't see, um, and then people started saying a lot of things, and so I was like, you know what? At first, I wasn't going to speak, and I remember the night so clearly. I was like, I wasn't going to say anything. Then I was like, wait, you know what? I think I have something to say, <laughs> and I did an Instagram live, and I talked about, you know, it's not diversity bingo. I was explaining terms because people were getting lost in the terms. Like people were saying, well, people are using the term white, white supremacy, and that feels very extreme. And so a white supremacist is extreme, right? White supremacy is a systematic, is the, the, the systemic uh, racism that, that attributes uh, preferential experiences based on the proximity to, to, to whiteness, right? Still a danger, but not, you know, again, it's, it's interconnected, right? And so I just wanted to explain what that meant. I wanted, and so people were like, oh, well, you should do this to get a Black person and do this to get a Hispanic person. And I said, well, that's diversity bingo, and we don't do that. That's tokenism. And so I explained what tokenism was. And so I just started talking about it, 
um, because it's what I do at work. I'm, you know, I, I lead it. I lead diversity education for my company. And so I spend my day facilitating the conversations around unconscious bias and microaggressions and all the things that um, we're now having candid conversations in the fiber community. And there are many people who were shocked and bothered by it, but I'm like, first of all, we're a microcosm of society. I always so say we are if, a microcosm of society. We're a That's microcosm so of society, right? Yes. And so if there, if there, and if there's something bubbling in society, it's going to come. It's going right. to show up. We're, we're not separate. It's kind of like COVID, right? Like once once COVID was out there, if you're moving through society, you're susceptible. Right. And so bias. Right. If you're moving through the world, you're going to grow up with bias. We all have them. It's being aware of them and being intentional. And so I just wanted to talk about it. And so, you know, I really think there were a few people in the beginning who gave me the opportunity to, you know, um, Brooklyn Boy Knits was doing a lecture at the city. And he invited me to talk about diversity. And that was like probably my first time doing a presentation outside of work, you know, um, Christy Glass Knits invited me and, 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 and the others to come, you know, so, so, so Gigi and, and of, of Gigi made it and Felicia of Strengthening and Lewis to have a conversation. And so, you know, that was us being recorded, just talking about what's happening and talking about our experiences. And then I was like talking about the tech, the, the technical terms and the explanation um, and then one, you know, I, 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 I look back and I can't even believe like the amount of opportunities that it have, that I've been yeah. presented with um, to really be able to voice. And I've been able to d- develop an intentional c- curriculum that speaks to, because I can't just take my work presentation and say, here's a presentation that, that I give about, you know, bias and recruiting and bias as a manager and microaggressions on your team. But we know that bias happens. So how do we talk about it in the fiber space? Right. How do we talk about the, the microaggressions that people experience when they go to a festival or they go to a yarn shop? And, you know, the the assumptions that you make when you see someone that they can't afford the thing, right? It's, it's, it's the same behavior. It just shows up different. And so I've been blessed with the opportunities. Um, and again, you know, I, I I go back to nothing is ever wasted because I'm still I'm traveling, and so now I get to really draw upon you know I've gone to countries where I don't speak the language I do not speak a lick of German, <laughs> right? And I've been in, in in yarn shops where they speak enough English and we speak yarn, yeah. And I've had amazing experiences and I didn't feel like I was a bother. I didn't feel, you know, I was made to feel welcome, you know, whether I'm in Paris or in in Italy, Vienna, in Austria, in Portugal, you know, I've been to yarn stores and I've been made to feel welcome. Right, right. And you've done a good deal now of public speaking as a result of this combined set of experiences and talents and expertise um, in the knitting world. And I wondered whether public speaking was something that kind of came naturally to you or whether (laughs) that was something you had to grow into and how, how has that been? So it's definitely, you know, it's funny. That's something that I've always uh, uh, talked about and struggled with because as a child, I had a speech impediment and occasionally I do stutter. Um, and so I've learned how to cope with with my stutter with, when it wants to show up. And so, uh, but ever since I took my friend's opportunity 
at Chase, I was in roles where I had to public speak. I had, you know, I've, I'm de- delivering the presentation on campus. I'm, you know, and so I've, I, for years, fought with the battle of I hate public speaking. It's the thing I have to do because it's my job. I don't love it. I don't, I don't enjoy it. But I've switched that narrative, and I've learned very early with students. They don't know what you're going to say, Cecilia. So, so just you know, you're the person with the the information. And so I've I've worked really hard on overcoming my so-called fear of public speaking. I've worked on owning the room. I've taken classes on how to, to own the room and how to be a a, a very um, to be a really good skilled facilitator. And so again, I go back to it's going to sound like a, a broken record, but that nothing is is ever wasted. And so all of the professional development to prepare me to deliver my content at work, I was able to leverage. Um, The thing that I learned and I finally listened to, it probably was a skill that I've always had. And I say that because when I was going through the management development program, we had to take a presentation class. And I remember being with my, my, my group and one of the assignments was you had to give yourself a score. You had to, you had to present, and you had to give yourself a score on, on how you did. And everyone else had to give you a score. And then you shared your score. And I remember I gave myself a six or five. The class gave me a nine. The average was eight and nines. And I'm like, okay, how am I seeing myself as a five or a six? But you all are seeing me as an eight or a nine. So then I was like, this is in my head. Right. It's so much of it is in our heads, but that's a very valuable way to get out of it is just to see how you're rating yourself and see how others are rating you. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So good. And so I know you are on the Vogue Knitting Diversity Council, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the role of that council and the work that you're doing together, because I so admire that council. And I think it's um, maybe a model for other businesses as well. And so if they could hear a little bit about how it works, that might be inspirational. Absolutely. So there are eight of us who are on the Vogue Diversity Council. Uh, we come from a variety of backgrounds. So from, from a diversity dimension perspective, our intersections are vast, right? I don't think we have everything uh, um, covered. You know, so they, they didn't, you know, but we, you know, we have the major um, um ways of being. So there's a knitter, a designer, a yarn shop owner, you know, we all, we all play a different role in the community. So starting with our role and then, you know, there are people who are in, in um, the UK, there's some here. So, so we're scattered. So we all, and we all have different um, roles that we play in the community as well. Right. So our, our passions are, are, are vast. And then we all have different dimensions from it identity perspective, male, female, our ages, our abilities and so forth. And so we collectively, when we come together, we we make up a pretty good minor microcosm of the community. And so I, what I love about us is that each of us challenges the other on, well, did you think about this from an 
an accessibility perspective? Did you think about this from a gender perspective? Because, you know, even with the best intentions, if you're not a part of the community that you're focused on, your blind spot might not allow you to see it. That's right. right? So it's not until, you know, it's not until you have foot surgery and you have to walk with the cast, you realize how hard it is to navigate yeah. Right. It's not until you have eye surgery and your vision is impaired, you realize how tiny letters are. Right. And so having the eight of us and we all have different perspectives is that it's like, well, no. So, so you, that presentation that, um, that you did, actually, if somebody has a vision impairment, it's not enough context between or, or contrast between the presentation page and your font. Your font is too small. Things that I wouldn't, you know, it looks okay to me or I think it does, right? So it's very right. good to have that that checks and balances. And so we've been able to apply that methodology to the Vogue experience, right? So what is the Vogue experience like for somebody with high anxiety stress who it's a busy floor? Where can they step away and go to a quiet room? What should that quiet room experience be like? Or what if you're there and you're in a wheelchair? The 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 uh, walkways are they wide enough to accommodate a wheelchair? What if you move slow? Maybe you might want to come in an hour before everyone else, or move slower, I should say, right? And you and you, and you need more, more time. And so those are things that if you're, you know, me, I'm pretty fast. I can navigate, dodge in and out right now, right? In five or ten years, I might be like, can I come in at eight o'clock, right? And so. Um, Having that perspective to the Vogue experience and looking at the makeup of teachers, you know, there's an opportunity for more diversity in the teachers, opportunity for more diversity in the vendors. Let's look at the fashion show. Like, let's 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 showcase up and coming uh, on people. What's the process to become a, a teacher? Like, how does someone, you know, become, right? And so we get to look at all of that from all sorts of angles to create a more inclusive VKL or virtual, or now it's virtual now, but a more inclusive experience. And so yeah. I think the, the, the culmination of our first six or seven months as a group would be the last year of Vogue, the 10th anniversary Vogue New York at the Marriott Marquis. So that was our, you know, first big Vogue since being a diversity council and it, the experience was so different. We've had so many people come up to us or comment, you know, thank you for the extra time. Thank you for the seat. You know, it's one thing to say, okay, this is wheelchair seating, but that, or person who needs, you know, the, the, the aisle seat, but they're with a friend. So why not have a seat for their friend? You know, it's, it's the things you start to think about, um, that I think really made a difference in that Vogue experience. Yeah. And then now we get to work with, with Nora Gunn and the e- editorial committee to look at the magazine. Right, right. And so the magazine looks different. Um, and, you know, our our ambition as a collective uh, diversity advisory council was to create sustainable change, um, was to... Um, create stuff that would be able to um, live on um, after us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that um, role, just to clarify, that's a paid position, correct? Doing, doing that. Um, um, yes. So, so there is a, a honorary, I don't know if it's an honorarium. There's, but there's um, some, but yes, yeah. there's, there's something we, we I, are, we are, 
compensated. Yes. Yeah. I think that that's, um, that's great. You know, it, cause it, you are lending your expertise and, and your know-how to, um, to help improve an organization. So I think that that's, that's really great. And, um, before we get to your recommendations, which we're going to do in just a moment, I wondered if you would tell us just a little bit about knitting the rainbow, um, because I think that's such a neat organization and maybe people would like to hear more about it. Sure. I, I was so excited to join. So Austin Rivers, and that is his real name, um, so talented, so smart, um, noticed or was was aware of the, the homeless um, crisis, particularly from an LGBTQ youth perspective. And in my day job, I also consider, well, I'd like to consider myself an ally. I don't get to call myself that. Others have to call me an ally. But I know that there is a, a crisis for LGBTQ youth because a lot of not every parent is accepting, not every parent is loving, and a lot of parents um, kick their kids out, really, and home is not safe. And so what Knit the Rainbow does is we know there are these homeless youth and we know, you know, there are um, um organizations that do provide um, um, for them, but the need is greater than what all the organizations can provide. And so in my day work, I learned about, you know, um, the Alley Forney Center. And I learned that here in New York that they, you know, ride the subways, they ride the A train because it's the longest uh, train ride where they can be on it. Or, you know, they need things like a, a, um, a Dunkin' Donuts um, gift card that gives them the right back in the day to sit in the space. And so knowing this, um, knit, what Knit the Rainbow does is provide hand-knitted, handmade accessories to keep them warm. So really, really made with love. Um, that's one focus, right? So it's the it's the, the collection of garments of accessories for them. And so we're constantly um, doing that. The other is we want to be able to, when things open up, teach them. So we're collecting yarn so we can do trade and, and teaching them. And so, you know, um, the organization is an official 503C, I believe, is the correct um, um, designation. And, um, you know, while we're starting with the accessories, we want to do more with our partners. We want to have, you know, mentoring and and career and academic uh, um, conversations. And so I'm really, you know, it fell right into my wheelhouse. I, I, I said yes to joining the board before Austin was even finished telling me what I'm like, yes. Yes. It's knitting. <laughs> it's an, it's, it's an underserved community or it's crafting. Perfect. It's an underserved yeah. community. I'm happy to be there. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thank you for telling us about it. So people, and I'll link to it in the show notes so people can, can get involved. Um, and, um, I did want to get to your, um, recommendations before we run out of time. So, um, if, if it's okay with you, we'll go there now. And you've said that you, um, have been, um, having fun with your passion planner, doing planning and being. Oh my goodness. There. Yes. Yes. Oh no, no. So, you know, it's funny. I I didn't realize how many crafters were also planners, right? So it's funny. Maybe a month ago, um, Christina of Chelsea Yarns, and and Gigi of of Gigi made it, and 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 uh, Sophie of uh, Sophie is is Delfina, and Trish of Tie Dye. Um, we we through Instagram, we noticed we're all like collecting stickers and our planners. And so we did a, you know, a, a planner conversation and like people came, it was a free zoom 
on a Sunday and we're like, let's see if people show up and people came and everyone was talking about their planner. So I love my, I'm really in love with my planner. I enjoy having like my Sunday night date with my planner to plan for the week and look over my goals and my, you know, just writing it down. Cause there's a, there's so much that I still would like to do and learn, but you have to write everything down. Totally. Right? And, and it so helps set that intention and it helps set track. the intention. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Absolutely, absolutely. And then you said that you've been um, enjoying using Canva, which is a digital photo editing program um, that you can use online for free to sort of make more interesting Instagram posts. Yeah, I'm trying to get better at it. I'm trying because I one, you know, I've 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 always loved art, and I was I, I mean I have my I still have my high school scrapbooks. Right. So I was still, so I was stickering and scrapbooking and everything. And so I'm really appreciating the aesthetics of, of what you can create with these digital tools. And so I'm still learning. There's so much that you can do. I'm, you know, I did while finishing school and working at Chase, I did graphics. And so I love graphics and fonts. And so I'm enjoying it. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots that you can do there. Um, And then finally, you wanted to recommend journaling as a way to sort of develop your writing skills um, and, and potentially down the road, get ready to write a book maybe. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been thinking about, I've been thinking more and more about like, what would my book be about? Like what, what advice could I give? Right. And so um, I've been journaling and also during this time of, of COVID, right. So I've been really, you know, whether I'm gratitude at the end of the day or I'm setting my intentions at the beginning of the day or in my passion platter, I'm looking back over the month at how the month I'm taking note and I'm documenting this time because it's been a year. Right. It's been over a year. And so I don't think, you know, and, and the year is not lost and there's still things happening and you want to be able to go back and say, oh, this is how I felt this day. Oh, I remember that. Right. Because in the COVID fog and in the blur that is life. Right. It's like life is slow and fast. Right. So, so when you think about what's to come, it feels like it's so long away. But then when it gets here, it's like that went so quickly. And so being able to document, whether it's through photos or through keepsakes or through your journal, I think is so important. And it also helps um, tell, tell your story. Yeah. And yeah my family I'm just a big finished. advocate. Yeah. We're making a, um, a scrapbook of a COVID scrapbook. Um, and I agree with you Aww. just being able to look back with my three kids and all that happened to us during this time. It's been really, really helpful. And I think we've already, the kids have already been like, who's going to get it later. We got to get copies of it made. And, you know, can we kept a lot of things. So I agree with you. It's really important and we'll want to look back, you know, and know yeah, what happened. It's funny. Yeah. My, 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 my manager, um, her mom passed away several years ago, but her mom had kept a journal and extensive, like, you know, and she wrote about when she would spend the day with each of her three kids, like what that day was like at the end of the day. And so when her mom passed away, she, she, she made copies of the journal and gave it to each kid. So each kid could remember that that Christmas or that random Saturday. And, you know, you have your understanding of how that day went. But to read what it meant to your mother, right, 
uh, yeah. is so, so different. Yeah, totally. That's lovely. Well, Celia, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft thank Industry Alliance podcast. Thank you for Alliance having podcast. me. Yeah, it was I'm, great. This is, this is so much fun. I'm so glad. Yeah, it was really great connecting with you. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by Digits and Threads. Remember to use the code ALLIANCE for 10% off your first year of Digits and Threads. Enjoy fiber and textile-focused articles and patterns steeped in the diverse traditions and contemporary creations of Canadian makers. Join today at digitsandthreads.ca. Thank you so much, Digits and Threads. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. And when you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. So join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. 